If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27, and you'll find it on page 543. Psalm 27, where we will read the whole of the psalm, but we will only consider tonight one verse of the psalm. Let me invite you to stand as I read God's word. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come once again looking to you and you alone to illuminate your word and to draw us near by your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would do those things in our midst tonight. Draw us to yourself. Bring us spiritually into the temple, to that paradise within the paradise where we walk with you as Adam once did. Do that for each one of us through the Spirit in our hearts, we pray this night. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please be seated. The Psalms are a different kind of book. You probably know that if you've been here for our psalm study. I've said this a couple times. The psalms are a very different kind of book in your Bible. They're utterly unique. In fact, they really aren't a book. There isn't really a book of psalms so much as there is a collection of psalms. You may even get away. I won't get away with it, but you may get away with saying that they are a massive album of worship. Over hundreds of years, as the psalms were completed, priests collected up these songs and poems and put them in this order. At one time, at one time, Psalm 23 was probably not the 23rd Psalm. Maybe it was the 17th. 
as hard as that is to imagine today. And we know this because the Psalms were written by Moses and David, who lived, for example, 500 years apart. And then there are Psalms written during the exile, which happened another 400 years after David's death. So this book, and it's the only one like this, was actually completed over centuries and did require the work of priests. As Christians who hear Jesus quoting the Psalms as divine scripture, we trust that God was in that process and guided it completely. If Jesus was confident in the integrity of this process, we must also be. As we read the Psalms today, we can see evidence of this work. We can see how priests, maybe especially priests in charge of music, grouped the Psalms into collections and even into sections. For example, David's songs, his Psalms, are throughout the Psalter, but especially prevalent here in the beginning. Almost all the early Psalms are his. And in many cases, we can see groups of Psalms or clusters of Psalms that have been put together for emphasis. For example, you might remember in our study earlier, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. Psalm 3 mentions waking up and trusting God for the beginning of a new day. And the very next Psalm, Psalm 4, represents the evening and what it means to trust God and sleep even when you're in a crisis. These two Psalms, 3 and 4, out of 150 different Psalms, did not just happen to end up next to each other. The priests who lived with this collection and used it for centuries to worship God would have placed them beside each other, using them for morning and evening worship at the temple, just as we try to do in our worship. Maybe David himself put them in that order, since he knew so well and loved so much the worship of the priestly life. For tonight, I want to begin by noting that this same grouping can be clearly seen in Psalm 26, Psalm 27, and Psalm 28, these three psalms. Some theologians, some commentaries even just take the three of them together and discuss them as a set. And it's easy to see why if you spend some time with them. All three psalms, in all three psalms, enemies have risen up against David, and David describes them in each psalm in similar ways. In all three, David asks to be heard and vindicated, to not be swept away with the unrighteous. He seeks to walk, as we saw last week, in his integrity. He trusts God and commits himself to him, and he waits upon the Lord. Psalm 27 ends with words that really sum up all three psalms. David writes in verse 14, Wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Although these three psalms are similar, there are in each of them verses that are unique. Each psalm has gems, a verse or two that gives the psalm its unique flavor. For Psalm 27, maybe more than any other verse, it is verse 4, one of the best loved verses of all time. Tonight, as we approach the table especially, I want us to consider just this one verse as it is, I believe, the beating heart of this psalm. As one scholar notes, one Old Testament scholar, this verse has no equal in the Old Testament in terms of concentrating into one desire, one great passion, all the love of God. Before I comment on it, let me read to you once again that verse, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing 
have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. So first of all, think with me about this one holy passion of David. This one holy passion of David. It's the very first word, isn't it, of the verse. The very first word is one. One thing he wants more than anything else. One thing he will seek after with all his heart. It's as if he is saying, give me this one thing or I die. Or as we sang just moments again, moments ago, teach me to love thee as thine angels love. One holy passion filling all my frame. This sounds wonderful, utterly excellent, but what was that one thing he wanted? And what does it mean to have one organized passion in your life? How can you do that? How can you say that while still caring about the million and one other things that come to you during your life? To start to appreciate this one passion to rule them all, we have to understand the context in which it was forged This wonderful verse was made in a forge. It was made in the red-hot fires of intense biblical suffering. The French theologian John Calvin was almost certainly right when he attributed this psalm to the time of Absalom's rebellion. This was the darkest moment of David's life. His own son had staged a coup against him, thrusting the nation into a bloody civil war. His son then physically assaulted his wives in public. Many of David's lifelong friends and allies have betrayed him, and he's on the run for his life once again. But this time he's not young and agile. He's not the shepherd king to be. He's not like Robin Hood and his merry men dodging King Saul. No, he's an older man, a man accustomed to his own bed and to the trappings of royal life. In short, his entire life has been turned upside down and shaken out. He has battles to win, friends to keep, spies to uncover, and treaties to worry about. And yet here in the midst of the raging storm of life, he says, There is only one thing I really need, only one thing I have really asked. I may not get back all my jewels, my palace may be burned, My wives taken, many friends lost, but let me go back to dwell near you, O Lord, at your tabernacle. To say something like that when life is easy and good and delightful, it's easy to say. We might even accuse him of being a little self-promotional. Look at how much I love God's house. But when you're drowning in grief and sorrow and worry, When you've lost so much and may never get any of it back. And then in that loss, in that loss, where your mind is keenly focused on what you can't live without. And in that wonderful clarity, that clarity that only intense suffering brings, that incredible ability to focus, you realize, really realize what it is that you want most of all, what it is you can't give up what you've really needed all along. And then you write something like verse 4. And that's verse 4 becomes one of the greatest verses in Scripture. 
the one in verse four glows and it glows because it was born in the fire. In the clarity that only suffering can bring, this one was made. But this clarity was not dreamy mysticism or a desire to check out and die. I think it can come off that way if you aren't careful. What I mean to say is that David is not doing here some kind of deep yoga and detaching himself from desire and saying, I no longer care what happens to me or my kingdom or my family. I just want to be near God. It would be easy, as we often do, to make David into some kind of spiritual superman and attribute this one desire, this beautiful verse, to some kind of detachment from the world. But this is not the case. He is still very engaged in what happens here and now. This one holy passion is not, is not a one of singularity, but a one of priority. It is not a one of singularity, but one of priority. In other words, David is not saying, I don't care about what happens next. This is the only thing that matters. Let the world burn. Just let me go into a monastery and be near God. That would be a singular passion, a passion that suffocates all the rest and demands to be alone. But this is not that kind of passion. It isn't a passion that demands to be alone. It is a passion that demands to be first. The singular passion here, this one holy passion, was not forged in rejecting life and its challenges. Rather, David was a father, a ruler, a judge, and a general. He had numerous concerns, and he was seeking God in every need that he had. For example, verse 3, doesn't it sound like a general speaking? Though an army encamp against me. He's very aware. That was very real during the rebellion of Absalom. In verse 5, he looks to God and he says, hide me. Given he's on the run in the wilderness, that's not just poetry. That's real. Hide me. In verse 6, he asks God to lift his head above his enemies. In other words, he asks for victory, real victory. And in verse 11, he asks for wisdom. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. So what does the first word one mean? How can David say this is the one thing I want when throughout the psalm he's asking for so many different things? Well, once again, the one is not the only thing. It is just the most important thing. It is the central request that ties all the other requests together. To put it another way, if this helps, the other prayer requests for victory and wisdom and guidance, those all exist to make number four, verse four, happen. David is saying, give me victory. Don't take me away with the wicked. These are my requests. But all these requests are so that I can return to the tabernacle, to the house of God. I think this is what Charles Spurgeon was after when he just briefly in noting verse 4 said, called it a, a molten desire, a molten or fiery desire. That is, he said, it melts all other requests into one holy passion. It gives all those other requests their direction, their meaning, their unity in our hearts. So fully connected to the world and your own life, 
You have, like me, dozens of prayer requests, and rightly so. You're praying for that sick person at work. You're praying for your children. You're praying for missionaries in faraway places. To be a Christian, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once noted, is to live fully in the world for the sake of Christ. And so a thousand requests, because we live fully in the world, a thousand requests flood the inbox of your mind and heart, and rightfully so. But what if, behind it all, covering it all, is one great desire, one insatiable hunger that cannot be filled by anything or anyone else? What if all the requests can be prioritized and organized under one master heading? Simply put, we need God. Not just his help, of course that, but you'll find that you need him. And that all other requests are but branches of that one tree. This is how one passion can hold a thousand sparks and how one passion can keep you in the world even as you long to go outwards towards God. And that leads me to our second observation. This one molten passion forged in the fires of suffering is a desire for God himself is a desire for God himself, not just his gifts, not just his help, but a desire for God himself. Yes, of course, David wants to be saved from his enemies, just like you and me, but we're wrong to leave it there. He doesn't want to be saved in order to just be saved. He wants to be saved so that, in the words of verse 4, He can dwell in the house of the Lord forever so that he can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and so that he can inquire in his temple. As the verse unfolds itself, notice how the one thing, the one holy passion is revealed to have three facets. He asks three things, you'll notice. It's clear in Hebrew, but it's there very clearly in English. He asks to dwell, to gaze and inquire of the Lord in his house or temple. All three of those need to be explored, but they really find their unity and I think their meaning and desire stated in verses 8 and 9, where we hear these words, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Dwelling, gazing, and inquiring are just three ways of saying, I want to be near to God. Because God had placed his special presence in the Ark of the Covenant and on the mountain in Jerusalem, David's heart, like a compass, points to that spot. It is his true north. There at the Ark and at the altar, as public worship is conducted in the majesty of the sanctuary, he has visions like Psalm 110. He gazes upon the beauty of the Lord and he inquires, getting answers for his life. Yes, he's missing his bed. He's missing his family, his throne. But in the clarity of suffering, he says, I miss the presence of God. I want what Adam had. I want to walk beside God. When you first come to Christ, if you can remember that time, your main instinct when you first become a Christian might simply be, I want to be saved from the wrath to come. I need an escape from sin. This is good. 
This is absolutely necessary. But then as you mature, that basic desire not to be damned should turn into a greater desire. The more you persist in faith, the more it's not enough just to be saved from wrath. You want to see God. You want to see his face. At first, you love him simply because he grabbed you and he saved you from drowning. But the more you think on that, the truth of that, the more you love him and the more intolerable it becomes to be apart from him. Mormon, Mormon missionaries once described to me their version of hell, Mormon hell. They said that hell was, of course, where most people were going, including me, because I had been baptized as an infant and especially because I was not immersed. However, they went on, there is good news. For them, in their false demonic faith, hell would be a wonderful planet like our own, but without sin or death. I would enjoy eternal life. They comforted me. I would enjoy eternal life as a normal person. I would never get sick or have problems. However, I would never be near God. Only Mormons would see God. I would get all the goodness of this life, but be shut out from the special presence of God. They thought this was good news for me, a more hopeful version of hell than the one given by Christians. But with the Puritans and with David, let us say, heaven would be hell to me without Christ. Deliverance is not enough. Our deepest longing is to worship the Lamb in the majesty of holiness. Maybe if we're honest, when we first came to Christ, something like Mormon hell sounded okay. You're forgiven. You're released from your debt. Your relationships are all repaired. Life is so much better. But then probably very early on, redemption reawakened an ancient desire in you. A desire that had always been there, but a voice always muffled. You realized that the joy you were always longing for is embodied in a person. That from God's right hand, the place where Christ is seated, flow pleasures forevermore. And then it wasn't enough just to escape your old enemy's death and sin. You also wanted to gaze, to dwell in his courts forever. This is what David wanted, and this is what God has done for us. When you understand this, the cross of Christ is properly transformed into what it really is. The cross is not a destination, but a bridge. The cross exists not as an end in and of itself, but as a bridge. Its utility is that it brings us back to God, and that was the point all along. The one holy passion is not a passion for a better life per se or simply a desire to escape doom. Rather, it is a one holy passion to be with God, to be near God. And there in the presence of God, gazing at his beauty and dwelling with him, there and there only can your soul find its purpose and meaning. And this is why, I trust you know this, this is why the people of our world are so unhappy, so unsatisfied, especially the richest, because the soul 
that was born out of God, born in his breath, can never find rest until it returns to him. We have eternity in us, and there's no feast that can be spread here that can satisfy. So poor, stricken, harassed David is consumed with longing for the tabernacle because it is the God-designated place of meeting. In one of the greatest sermons I have ever read, my favorite theologian, Gerhardus Voss, wrote these words, the possession of Jehovah himself, the possession of Jehovah himself by his people will be of all the delights of the world to come, the chief and most satisfying. He says, it is the paradise within the paradise of God. The one holy passion for God's presence is animated by the reality that the paradise God gives, the gifts he gives to us, are all united in one greater gift, the gift of himself. This is the paradise within the paradise of God. It is Eden and it is paradise, not because of the flowers, but because God is there. And wherever he is present, fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. This is what it means to have your prayers and your life united under one banner, bound together by one overriding desire. It doesn't mean you've checked out of life. It doesn't mean you can't pray for a thousand different needs. You will. It simply means that all these requests are tethered back to one great request, that you may see and know the glory of God. I want you to see tonight that all the gifts and deliverances of God come to you, every single one you've received in your life, everything he's ever given you, comes to you with golden strings attached. And if you tug on those strings, they all go back to him. They were all meant to bring you back to him. That is paradise. When you find by grace the paradise within paradise, when you realize that all along he meant to give you himself because there was nothing better for him to give. And when you love the way he loves, you want to give yourself. As much as I would like to just stop there, we need one more observation from our text, a word of practical help and direction. If you are longing for God's presence, follow David's direction in verse 4. Where did David go? How did David feed the flame of this one holy passion? Verse 4 says that David went to the tabernacle, the house of the Lord. In other words, David sought the Lord in his ordinances. David went to the place God had appointed for their meetings. He sought the Lord at the place where the Lord put his name. God had said to David, meet me here. And David was longing to go there and be part of the worship God had ordained and prescribed. Here's what I'm getting at. David experienced the presence of God in the wilderness as a shepherd boy. He felt the presence of God on the battlefield where God taught his fingers to make war. But he knew, he knew above all to seek God in the worship which God had commanded and ordered 
for his good. He was a deeply spiritual man. He was a man of incredible visionary experience. And yet he tells us, I'm seeking all of that in the place God has ordained. Two wonderful old commentators, Matthew Poole and Matthew Henry, make this point. This vivid spiritual desire, this hunger and thirsting, is not wild and uncontrolled. It's not aimless and wandering. It wasn't a self-guided journey. No, it was a pursuing of God's presence in the means of grace which God had appointed. For David, that was the tabernacle. That was what godly men of old called God's holy ordinances and what we often call today the means of grace. God, and this is such a God thing for God to do, he's hidden the richest delights of his presence in the simple acts of public and private worship, prayer, singing, reading, and communing. He's hidden himself in these simple elements, just as he did in days long ago when he hid himself in the tabernacle. These places cannot hold him. The Ark of the Covenant David is talking about here was just a little golden box, not much bigger than this. These places cannot hold him. Even our Bible cannot hold him. But in his love, he allows himself to be found in them. You don't have to go to a shrine tonight. Just go to the places where he said he would meet with you. And when you do, the means of grace will lead you straight to Christ, just as the temple and its worship did for David and all Israel. Remember, God said to David, verse 8, Seek my face. David replies, Your face, Lord, do I seek. In that quest for God's face, David was led to the tabernacle, to the ordinances of God, as the place to see most clearly the face of God. But we have a better tent, don't we? The apostle Paul reminds us with these words, God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The temple and its worship, the Bible and our worship, is all designed to reveal to us, to bring us near to the glory of God, the paradise within paradise. If you have ears to hear and eyes to see, he's drawing near once again tonight in the preaching, in the singing, in the praying, and in the Lord's Supper. The face of God, which is Jesus Christ, draws near to us. May you and I have this one holy passion to know God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we would pray that through your Holy Spirit, we would love you as your angels love you, and that you would give to each one of us this one holy passion, this desire not just for your gifts, not just for our own salvation, as wonderful as that is and how we rejoice in it, but an even greater, deeper, and more ancient hunger, a hunger to know you, to be with you as we were meant to be, 
lead your people into this paradise within paradise. They might find you and find you in your son and in the ordinances he has appointed. We pray now, Father, as we turn to the table, one of those ordinances which he has established, that you would meet with us and that you would strengthen us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.